Well, good morning, everybody. You have your Bibles this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where you need to go. I'll be really honest with you. I was a little bit conflicted about uh, what to preach today. Um, it's picnic day, and uh, even thought about wearing jeans and a t-shirt so that we could just go straight to the picnic, and, and thought about preaching a, a passage of scripture that is much lighter and happier and fun and easy, and uh, that's just not where we're at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, it is going to be a weird transition to go from this to the picnic, uh, but we're going to do it, okay? Uh, and we're going to study the Word. We're going to see what it has to say to us. We're going to watch as God uh, brings His truth in front of us, and then we must respond uh, to it. Last week, we saw Paul, in his talk with the church at Corinth, mitigate his comments a little bit. He, he, uh, his harsh tone kind of gave way to tenderness at the end of chapter 4 as he began to speak to these people as their father, as their spiritual father. Remember, we talked about that, about how he loves them and cares for them, how he teaches them and leads them by example. And when necessary, he disciplines them, he punishes them, so to speak. But we saw this tenderness and this affection that came from Paul. Uh, we, we saw how as a father, uh, he says, I'm coming back to see you. I'm going to come back to see you. It's not a matter of if I'm coming back to Corinth or even when I'm coming back to Corinth. The question at the end of chapter 4 seems to be, how will Paul come back to Corinth? And he really puts the ball in their court. He says, he says kind of up to you guys, kind of up to you guys, Corinthians. If, if you repent and confess and change your ways, then I'll come to you with a spirit of gentleness and kindness and peace. But if not, I will come to you with the rod of discipline. And he says, which would you prefer? And of course, we would all say we would prefer a spirit of gentleness and kindness and peace, right, than the rod of discipline. But Paul says... It's in, their, it's in their court. It's up to them. And a couple of things he does there. One is he strengthens his stance once again. And the other is he prepares the way for the text this week that we're going to look at. I told you that we should be thankful in our lives for people who are like Paul. Uh, people who love us like a father and are willing to say to us difficult things when we need to hear them. Willing to pull the belt off, so to speak, and, and give us a couple of lashings when we need it. Willing to speak hard truths to us. We should be very thankful for people like that in our lives. We should be those kind of people for folks in our lives. We should love them enough to speak the truth to them. And then we talked about why Paul loves this group so much. This group is very unlovely, right? Uh, the church at Corinth, at this point in the game, they are not a lovely people. They are not nice to each other. They are not nice to Paul. They are not believing the things that they necessarily should believe. They are a mess. And it would be easy for Paul just to dismiss them and say, I'm, I'm through with you. I'm finished at, at Corinth. But because of the gospel, because Christ loves us when we are unlovely, Paul will continue to love them even when they are unlovely. That doesn't mean that he doesn't speak hard truths to them. Uh, in fact, it means that he will speak hard truths to them just like Jesus does in, in our own lives. Well, this week, um, the, te the, the stage is set from last week. We're going to talk about a new section of 1 Corinthians where Paul continues to address things that he's heard, things that he's been made aware of. Uh, specifically, we're going to deal with some moral issues in the text today. Um, you're going to see Paul's tone as we begin chapter 5 that he just almost can't believe what's going on at Corinth. Uh, things are so weird and so bad that he just can't believe it. It's like a, like a bad episode of, of Jerry Springer or Maury Povich uh, is going on here in Corinth. And Paul is trying to engage this just bizarre behavior and bizarre rationale for the behavior. And he just seems to be very puzzled at the whole thing. Uh, one commentator said, not only is the church at Corinth divided, which we've talked about for about six months now. We've talked about the divisions at the church at Corinth. Not only are they divided, they are disgraced by the behavior that is being exhibited in their midst. Um, I want you to be very careful as we engage this text today not to remove yourself too far from it, 
Uh, there are a lot of us that will read a text like this and a man who has his father's wife and all of this stuff that's going on, and, and you would say, oh, stuff like, stuff like that doesn't happen in the church today. Stuff like that, would, oh, that's something that happened way back then in first century culture. Stuff like this doesn't go on today, and so this text doesn't really apply today. I will present to you that stuff like this happens every day in churches all around the world. Um, stuff like this happens all the time, and so we don't need to distance ourselves from this text. We need to dive right into this text and say, what is going on here, or what is going on in my life that is like this, that we should look at and be appalled by. We should look at and be astonished that such things would even be spoken of, let alone committed, and we need to be ready to take action. We need to dive into this text and see ourselves in the midst of it. Does that make sense? So don't, don't be that guy that says, oh yeah, Corinth, they were a mess. Oh yeah, they, Paul, go get them. They're a, they're a big problem. We need to say, what does this have? What does this have for me? What are the areas of my life that need conviction and confrontation? So chapter 5 uh, today, uh, won't be lots of smiles and laughter today, um, but, but it's good for us and we need it. God gives us exactly what we need when we need it, right? Okay, good. Chapter 5, we'll get through the whole chapter today. It says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves." Let's pray. God, we thank you for days like this uh, when, when you uh, step in and foil uh, our best laid plans. Um, when you step in and speak a truth that we did not anticipate to hear. It is days like this when we know that you speak with power and authority into our lives. And so we ask that you will do that as we study 1 Corinthians chapter 5. God, I pray that you will guard us from removing ourselves from the text and acting as if it has no application for us, no meaning for us. God, help us to see that you have given all of this word for us and that it is profitable, all of it is profitable to us. God, I pray that you work on our hearts today for the good of the individuals present in this room, for the good of the church that is here and for the good of the world that needs desperately to hear a consistent gospel proclamation and a consistent life witness. God, help us today to understand, but more than that, to respond rightly in submission and obedience to your word always. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you check out verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, you'll see a couple of things going on. One, you will see that Paul begins to outline what exactly the sin is. And you need to see the way it develops. You need to see the way he introduces this issue. Because it's, it's like he waits to the very end of verse 1 to really deliver that this is exactly what's going on. But he sets the stage so that they will be amazed and astonished that this kind of thing is going on. Or at least that they should feel that way. Look what he says. He says, it's actually reported... That there is immorality among you. The word immorality that he uses there is the Greek word porneia. Uh, it's where we get our word pornography and, and, and other words like that. It is kind of the most general term in Greek for sexual sin. Uh, any kind of sexual sin falls under the category of porneia. Now clearly there are more specific words that fall into that category like homosexuality or uh, sex before you're married or sex with someone other than your wife while you're married or some kind of other perversion. There are very specific words that fall under that category, but this one word is very general. And so as he begins to address this issue with them, he uses the most general word. He says, it's actually reported. I'm actually hearing, and, and do you get a sense of his astonishment even in that? He says, I'm actually hearing that this kind of thing is going on among you. I'm actually hearing that there is very general sexual immorality going on among you. And then he says, he's more specific in the second clause, he says, and immorality, same word, porneia, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. He says, not only, not only am I amazed that this thing is happening among you, but what is happening, the specifics of what is going on in the church at Corinth, is something that not even the Gentiles have going on. Not even the pagan, secular, hedonistic Gentiles would do the kind of thing that is going on at the church in Corinth. In fact, you can read about it. There's lots of other writings other than the New Testament from that era, from the first, second century era. There's lots of other writings. And you can read some Greek philosophers and some leaders of the day who are not Christians, who are very secular-minded, and they will actually speak very boldly against the very thing that is happening in the church at Corinth. So do you see how he escalates the issue? He says, number one, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And that sexual immorality is so bad, it's so gross and so offensive, that not even the Gentiles would do such a thing. Not even the Gentiles would speak of such a thing. Not even the pagan hedonistic world is involved in the kind of thing that you've got going on at the church in Corinth. And then, for the final zinger, he gives it right at the end. He specifically says what's going on. And this should fall on us like a ton of bricks. It should have fallen on the church at Corinth like a ton of bricks. Listen to what he says. He says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And everyone should go, <gasps> no way! That is disgusting! That is inappropriate! There is no excuse for that ever! And that's exactly the way the world should respond. That's exactly the way the, even the world would respond to this. It's certainly the way the church should respond to this. You get what's going on here, right? Some guy is having a very inappropriate relationship with his stepmother, with his stepmother. And you can, you can dive in and read all about what is going on here between these two. Clearly, it is a physical thing. There's probably some money involved in this as well. Probably that boy, the, the son who is with his stepmother, probably he's inherited all of this money and the stepmother uh, wants to get in on the money and she didn't get any when the, when the husband died and it's a whole big mess. But the church... The church is perfectly willing to embrace it because of the money is what a lot of scholars think. But the bottom line here, what you need to get from verse 1 is that Paul is astonished. He says, I cannot believe, I cannot believe this. This kind of thing doesn't even go on in, with the Gentiles. 
This kind of thing doesn't even go on with the hedonists. And there is a man in the church at Corinth that has his father's wife. It's messed up, right? You get that, don't you? You, you don't read that and say, hey, love is love, and no one can, no one can tame the heart, and hey. You, gotta... you don't buy that, do you? This is messed up. J- Jerry Springer? Maury Povich? I- exactly, right? One of the applications where I'm going to make toward the end is that there are very few things that astonish us anymore. There are very few behaviors that we react with this, I cannot believe that. I can't believe you would even think of that, let alone do that. We need to be more sensitive. One of the marks, we've talked about a lot of marks of maturity for Christians. One of the marks of maturity, I'm convinced, is sensitivity to things like this. Because I believe that Scripture is clear that the hardening of your heart, the callousness of your heart toward things like this is evidence of, of distance from God. One of the things that happens when we're distant from God is we become very callous and very hard, and we don't, things like this don't shock us anymore. And we live in a culture that is not shocked by anything, and so we need to be more sensitive. So in verse 1, Paul outlines the sin, and it is a messed up deal, and he can't believe it. You need to pick up on his tone there. Verse 2 makes the matter worse, and I want you to hear that. Verse 2 escalates the whole thing in Paul's mind, because in verse 2, he begins to talk about the church's response to this sin. And the translations vary at this first part. I think NIV in in verse 2 says, and you're proud, exclamation point. You're proud of this. You've become arrogant. You are, some translations say, puffed up. You are proud of this. This man in the church has his father's wife, and you're proud of it. You're proud. You're boasting in it. You are arrogant about it. Paul is just as, probably more so, upset with the church in their response to this sin than he is the man who's actually committed the sin. He sees the church also as culpable in this whole thing. Look what he says. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. That's what they should have done, right? You hear that a man in your church has an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom? Your heart should break. You should weep. That word for mourn is a very specific word for mourn that indicates the loss of someone very close to you. It'd be like your husband or your wife or your child dying. It's that kind of mourning, that kind of heartbreak, that kind of pain. When you hear about something like this, that's what should happen in your heart. But instead, the church at Corinth is proud of it. They are boasting in it. They are standing up and saying, look at, look at us. Look how tolerant we are. Look at how accepting we are. Look at how open-minded we are. And Paul is not going to let them get away with this. I hope some of this rings a little bit true, right? This is, we're not far removed from this. The church that, that, that we are a part of today, maybe not specifically here, but around the world, this kind of stuff is happening all the time, and the stance that the church is taking is headed more and more in this direction. We're tolerant. We're open-minded. We're accepting. Paul says, it's a mess. It's a mess, and it's got to be fixed. He says, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead. And if you had mourned, if you had the right attitude, if you had the right perspective, this is what would happen. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. That's the right response. And Paul's going to articulate that for the rest of the chapter. The right response to this thing is not pride. It is mourning that leads to action, and that action is for the good of everyone. I want you to hear, when we talk about church discipline, when we talk about what's going on here, the action that Paul is prescribing for the church is good for everybody. It is for everybody's best interest. 
for the man who is sinning, for the church who has embraced the sin, and for the world that's looking on. The action that Paul prescribes here is best for everybody. You with me? I told you this wasn't going to be easy. Look what he says. He begins to articulate it more clearly. Verses 3 through 5 have to do with the individual. Look what he says. He says, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. You're going to see as 1 Corinthians develops a little further, Paul is going to have to deal with some very gray issues, some kind of gray area issues where kind of it could go either way and, and kind of we're not real clear and there's an issue of Christian liberty and there's a question of uh, responsibility to each other and there's all of this kind of thing. What I want you to see in verse 3, there's no wiggle room here. It's black and white. Paul says, I've, ar- I've already come to the conclusion. I don't need to hear any more of the facts. This guy's got to go. This guy's got to go. The judgment is already clear. I've judged him already who has committed this. Now let me ask you this. Does Paul have a right to judge this guy? He not only has a right, he has a responsibility. Just like the rest of the church. He not only has a right to do this, he has a responsibility. Now I want you to hear that he's not judging his eternal destiny. Because he makes that clear a little while later when he says, I'm going to give him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's not making a judgment about this man's eternal destiny, but he's making a judgment based on his actions that this is wrong. Wrong is wrong. Sin is sin. And we've got to call it that, right? When we see it, we've got to call it that. We can't call sin righteousness and righteousness sin. We've got to call sin sin, right? Paul has not only a right to cast this kind of judgment, he has a responsibility, not just because he's an apostle, but because he's a Christian. And we have this same responsibility to each other. And we should welcome it. We should invite it. When people see us doing foolish things like this, when we see a brother who has his father's wife, or if we have our father's wife, we should expect someone to say, you've got to stop that. That is wrong. There is no way to justify it. It's got to stop. So what he does in verse 3 is he, I mean verse 6, yeah, verse 3, he makes clear that this is a black and white issue. He doesn't need to have a hearing. He doesn't need to have a trial. He's heard the facts and the judgment is clear. Verse 4. This is where it gets a little more difficult. There's some language here that is difficult to translate. It says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There are about three things that are going on in that verse. Three three, uh, kind of prescriptions for the church. Number one, he says, get together. And this is going to happen not just on an individual basis. This is going to happen church-wide. This thing is very public. This thing is out there. It's a church problem, and so the church is going to have to handle it. Uh, He talks about the spirit being involved in this. He talks about the authority of the Lord Jesus being evoked on this whole thing. But I want you to see that the bottom line is the desire for restoration for this guy. I want you to hear that throughout it all, the desire is good for everybody. He doesn't say, get him, get him out so that, so that we can make a big scene and make an example of him and, and cause a riot. He says, get him out for his good. Get him out for his good so that apart from the context of the local church, apart from the fellowship of the local church and the teaching of the word and all these things, he will feel the weight of his sin. He will feel the consequences of what is going on and hopefully repent and turn. There are a lot of scholars that say that's exactly what happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That Paul is talking about this one who has been forgiven, whom he has forgiven, and all of this. There are a lot of people that would say that's exactly what happened. That this man did repent and he was welcomed back into the fellowship. That's what we desire, right? So we, we do this thing that Paul outlines, not only for the good of the man who is sinning, but we do this for the good of the church. It is not good for the church at Corinth to boast the way they're boasting. 
It is not good for the church to boast in sin, to say, look at us, we welcome all kinds of sin. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't embrace sinners? Well, we've got to embrace sinners, right? Or else we would have no hope. And we've got to love and care and have compassion, but at the same time speak the truth. At the same time speak the truth, especially when it comes to brothers. So it's for the good of the individual, it's for the good of the church, and I'm convinced, though it doesn't say in the text, I'm convinced that it's for the good of the world. What does the world say when they look at the church at Corinth and they see a man who has his father's wife, something that they wouldn't even embrace, something that they wouldn't even endorse, and they see it going on in the church and they watch the church say, yeah, he's our guy, he's our guy, look at us. They put him on the billboard outside of town, the church at Corinth, tolerant as can be. Come one, come all. What do you think when the world looks at that? What do they say? Really? Really, that's what's going on there? That's hypocritical. That can't be the case. It ruins the witness. So I think that a consistent gospel proclamation and a consistent gospel witness is the key for the good of the world. So Paul, in verses 3 through 5, outline what is supposed to happen for this guy. In verse 6, he turns his attention to the church, and this is gold. He says, your boasting is not good. (laughs) Yeah, that's an understatement, isn't it? It's intentionally an understatement. He says, your boasting is not good. It's not good for you to boast this way. And then he says, do you not know? Remember, I told you that's going to come up nine more times, eight more times now. That little phrase, do you not know? Paul is going to introduce an issue that they should already be well informed about, but they're not. They are behind the times. They are behind where they should be. They should know better than this, is what he's saying. Do you not know? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? You know what that teaches us? It teaches us that sin works like yeast. It works like leaven. Do you have to put a lot of yeast in bread to get it to rise? Just a little bit. Just a little bit, does it? And when you put a little bit of yeast in the dough, does just part of it rise and the rest of it stay unaffected? No, it impacts the whole lump of dough, doesn't it? If it works right. The whole lump rises. That's what we want, right? When we put yeast in something. And so what Paul is teaching us here is that sin, though it is a small thing, it is a powerful thing. And it is something that spreads and impacts everyone around. And you need to hear that. I've said that probably a dozen times from this pulpit, that there is no such thing as private sin. In a family of God, in the church of Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as private sin. Everyone around you is impacted by your sin. Everyone. You need to recognize that, that your sin privately has implications corporately in all kinds of different ways. And we'll see that all throughout 1 Corinthians. There's no such thing as private sin. And in doing this, in mentioning this whole business of leaven and dough, Paul brings to mind Passover, right? It's where the whole business of unleavened bread came from, right? Passover. God is going to deliver his people from Egypt, and in the process he's going to be in great destruction on the Egyptians, right? That the angel is going to come through and kill all the firstborn, but the Israelites will be spared if they sacrifice a lamb and they put that lamb's blood on the doorposts of their house, then the angel will pass by and their children will be spared. And in the process, they get all in a hurry and they make a feast and they don't use the leaven, right? And this process continued on for generations and generations to remember the Passover. Now that drips of Jesus, doesn't it? Kill the lamb put his blood on you, and you pass the judgment. That's exactly the gospel, isn't it? We sang about that a minute ago. I love that song. I love the one line in that song where it says, John saw a lamb 
And then he says, I want to know everything about that lamb. <laughs> I love that. I want to know everything. John saw a lion lay down with a lamb. I want to know everything about that lamb. That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? That's the Lamb of God who sits on the throne, a lamb standing as if slain. By his blood purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's the Lamb. Paul's talking about it here. He's talking about Jesus here, and he's saying because of what Jesus has done, you've got to get rid of the leaven. You've got to get rid of the leaven. It's, it's, it's messing up the whole lump of dough. Look what he says. Verse 7 is money. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. This is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And you need to get this. If you don't get anything else that we're saying today, you get this. This is the point of the whole chapter. We're not just talking here about a man with his father's wife. We're not just talking about porneia. We're not just talking about sexual sin or church discipline. What we are talking about is sanctification. Sanctification. What does it look like to live out this Christian life? And this is what it looks like to live out the Christian life. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. That's sanctification. That's what it looks like to get rid of our sin, repent of our sin, fight against our sin, and follow after Jesus. Clean out the old leaven so that you will be a new lump. But notice, as he gives that imperative, as he gives that command, as he gives that action statement to clean out the old leaven, he bases that action on an indicative statement, on a positional statement. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Catch it? He says, you are unleavened bread. You are unleavened bread. How did you get to be unleavened? The Passover has been sacrificed for us. Jesus, our Passover, has already been sacrificed. We are, positionally, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we are unleavened bread. That's who we are. He says to the church at Corinth, you are saints. That's who you are. You are unleavened bread in Christ. Based on that indicative statement, based on that declaration of truth and fact, then he builds the imperative and he says, clean out the old leaven. He says, you are saints, act like it. That's who you are. Don't act like it so that you become saints. Don't clean out the old leaven so that you become a new lump or so that you become unleavened. You are unleavened, act like it. You get this? Oh, this is gold. This is absolutely gold that he gives a positional statement and builds the imperative, the command, off of the indicative statement. Same thing happened in Joshua. You remember that? Same thing happened in Joshua. He told Joshua, go in and possess the land. You go in and possess that land. You take it. And then why does he say you go in and take it? Because I've already given it to you. That's the position, right? That's the declaration. That's the indicative. It's already yours. I promised it to your father and your father and your father before you. It is yours. Go get it. That's what's going on here. We're not, we're not getting rid of leaven so that we become a new creation. We are a new creation. Get rid of the leaven. You, don't, you do not get this. Do you? Shall I go on and, and talk about it some more? Rant and rave some more? Or are you with me? Look what he says. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are in fact unleavened. You are in fact unleavened. Get rid of the leaven. That's the way it works with the gospel, right? You are a saint. Live like it. One of my favorite preachers posted on Twitter the other day, sanctification equals becoming what you are. That doesn't make any sense grammatically, does it? It doesn't make any sense grammatically. That's exactly what sanctification looks like, becoming what you already are. And it's a process, and we should grow in it every day. 
Then he says, he says that you are in fact unleavened for Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. You know how many times the Jews did this sacrifice of the lamb? Every year. Every year, Passover time comes. We've got to slay a lamb, and we've got to put the blood on us, and we've got to have the, the unleavened bread. You know how many times Jesus sacrificed? Once for all, and then he sat down because the work is done, right? Our Passover has been sacrificed. We are unleavened. Now let's live like it. And that means you can't have your father's wife. And that means a whole lot of other things. So, he says, therefore, in verse 8, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, not with this old leaven business, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, if you will do this, if you will live out your stance, your status, if you will live out your position in Christ, it will be a feast of joy. And it will be so good for everyone. As it stands, there's not joy in Corinth. Can, cannot have joy in Corinth when this guy's got his father's wife and the church is boasting about it. Verse 9. Shifts gears a little bit and Paul begins to clarify a misunderstanding from his first letter. You know that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It's the second letter. Look what he says in verse 9. This is good. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. The word immoral there is the same word. Same word before. comes from porneia. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. I didn't mean don't associate with them. I didn't mean that, that you've got to stay completely away from them. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. You catch his logic there? He says, I'm not, I'm not advocating some sect that is completely removed from society and sheltered and build a big wall around the church and not have any impact on the world. He says, if you were to try to stay from the, away from the immoral people of the world and the swindlers and the adulterers and the covetous of the world, you would have to leave the world. And the church has done this before. You know that, right? In the history of the church, they've tried to do this. In fact, I, I've read stories about these monks, these super spiritual guys who would climb up on a mountainside into a cave. And they would live for years and years and years in this cave with no other human contact at all as an exercise in their piety, as an exercise in their spirituality. In fact, they would hook up a little pulley uh, and down at the bottom of the mountain they would, they would pulley them up some bread every once in a while and some water every once in a while, but they didn't have any contact with anybody. Is that good? Is that what we need to do as a church? So I'll find a, I would like to some days. Don't get me wrong. I don't think I would mind solitary confinement at all. But that's not what we're called to do. Paul says, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to, to not have any contact with them or not to associate with them at all, because then you'd have to go out of the world. And, and Christ said we're in the world to make a difference, right? Can you be salt and light in a cave on a hill? No, you can be salt and light in a city on a hill. With a light that shines on a stand for all the world to see, that's what it looks like to be salt and light. So Paul says, I want to correct this misunderstanding. I'm not talking about not associating with immoral people of this world. In verse 11 he says, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person. He says, I'm not, I'm not talking about you separating yourselves from the world. I'm talking about the family. I'm talking about an accountability, a standard within the family. You don't associate with any so-called brother if he's involved in this. And notice he adds a laundry list of things here. He says, I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, same word as before, or covetous, 
or an idolater, or a reviler, that word means abusive speech, or a drunkard, or, or drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He says a little separation here would be good. From these so-called brothers, that's what he's advocating for the man who has his father's wife, right? Get him out. Get him out. Let there be separation. For his good, for your good, for the world's good, let there be separation. That's what happens with brothers. We've got to have this separation so that lessons will be learned, so that things will be set right. But we can't have that kind of separation from the world or else it will make no difference. Look what he says in verse 12. This is great. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? We should not expect the world to act like the church, should we? Have I ever told you about the time I went to a youth camp and there was a guy who had on this crazy pants and he had a crazy like mohawk and a cross shaved in the back of his head and all this stuff. And he was talking about being a bold witness for Christ on an airplane that was delayed. Have you, have you heard this story before? And how the, the plane was delayed for a long, long time and everybody was mad and it just kept escalating. And then people were cussing at the stewardesses and, and being just really ugly. And he said that he was just sitting there and one of the stewardesses came along and said, hey, how come you're not acting like them? And he said, did you see the back of my head? Did you see the big cross shaved in the back of my head? How come you're not acting like them? He said, because I'm different from them. I'm different from them. I follow Jesus, and there's a standard that I must live. And I'm not happy with this, but I'm not going to act crazy about it. And he said, I'm not acting like them because I'm not like them. And he said, what about you? What about you? She said, well, I'm not a Christian. He said, then start cussing. You should cuss. You should throw a fit. Because we should expect the world to act like the world, right? problem is, we expect the church to act like the world too most of the time. We should not expect the world to act like the church, but we should expect the church to act like the church, right? Too many of us expect the church to act like the world. Not going to happen. Can't happen. It's what he's talking about here. We've got to be different. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? That's what he's advocating. He says, we have a responsibility. Look what he says. Verse 13 makes it clear, as if the rhetorical questions weren't clear enough. He says, but those who are outside, God judges. God judges those who are the outside. God judges the world. He says, you remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You have a responsibility. You have, uh, well, that's the best word I can think of, a responsibility to deal with this man who has his father's wife. Is that clear? Okay, four applications today and then we're done. Number one. There are certain things that should appall us, certain things that should astonish us. We've already talked about all of this, but I want you to remember this. When you walk out of here, I want you to remember this. There are certain things that should appall us. Sensitivity is another mark of maturity. Callousness is evidence of problems in your life. When you hear about stuff that goes on in this family, you should not react with, oh, yeah, of course, it's just the way we are. You should mourn. You should mourn to the point of action. Sensitivity is what we need. There are things that should appall us. And there are everyday things that go on here in Harrisburg, in our lives, that are appalling. Absolutely astonishing. Number two, there's no such thing as private sin. We are a family. And we are in this together, whether you like it or not. And what you do in the darkness of, of, of your house, the darkness of night, impacts the people in this room. It does. And you just need to embrace that and let that hold you accountable when it's dark. There's no such thing as private sin. We are a family and we're in this together. Number three, discipline is necessary. It is absolutely necessary to the well-being of the church, to the proclamation of the gospel. Discipline is necessary. Do you believe that in your house? 
Have you seen households who have no discipline? Does that end up a good thing for the world? No. Same is true for the church. Discipline is necessary. It's not fun. Do any of you like receiving discipline? No. Do any of you just really like giving discipline? No. I didn't get that until I had kids of my own. When my dad would say, I hate, I hate to do this. <laughs> or, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Yeah, right. I get it now. I get it now. It does. It is a hard thing to bring discipline to someone else, right? But all, oh, aren't we thankful for it as adults? Aren't we thankful for the discipline we received as children? Absolutely. It's for our good, and it's out of love. And then the last application is this, this talk about become who you are. If you are a Christian today, if you have repented of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he has saved you, man, grow. Grow, grow, grow. And part of that growing is spending time in his word. Part of that growing is spending time in his, with his people. Part of that growing is spending time in prayer. And part of that growing is repenting, repenting, repenting. Fighting, fighting, fighting against our sin. The, the war is won, right? The war is won. If you are in Christ, you are a victor. Fight now. Fight these little battles as a victor, right? Become who you are. If you're a Christian, grow. Grow. Go in and take the promised land. Get out the old leaven because you are a new lump. You are unleavened, in fact, in Christ. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, come to Jesus. Run, run to Jesus and call out to him and ask him to save you. Ask him to clean out the old leaven. Ask him to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. Ask him to give you righteousness. Righteousness that doesn't come from the law, but righteousness that comes from faith in Him. Ask Him and He will save you. And then you follow Him and you grow. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for days like this. We can be reminded about the reality of sin. Its presence in the world. God, I pray that you will make us sensitive to sin in our lives, especially in our own lives. God, I pray that we will be aware of the plank that is in our eye. Pray that you will examine our hearts and see if there are wicked ways in us. Pray that you will make us very sensitive to our sin and make us very sensitive to sin around us, especially in the church. And help us to deal with that sin, whether it is removing the plank from our own eye or helping a brother remove the speck from his. Help us to deal with it because you have already dealt with it on the cross. Ultimately, you have already done it. Ultimately, we are unleavened. Help us, Father, in light of that truth to clean out the old leaven that we may be a new lump. God, I pray that when discipline is necessary, you will bring it by your word, by your spirit, and by your people. God, I pray for folks who are in here today who are lost. Who are lost and don't know you at all. Who look at the church with all of its problems and say, I don't want to know him. God, I pray that you will work in their hearts in such a way that they will see that they desperately need you every day. And that they will respond in that great need by calling out to you. By repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.